Welcome to episode number eight of Metascam. We are a podcast dissecting scams one fraudster at a time. And now, from the excellence in podcast studios, it's time for another episode of Metascam. We break down scammers' approaches, their tricks and misdirections, and other tools they use, and we present you with our direct analysis. This is Andy. And this is Peter. Coming up on episode number eight of Metascam, we will first talk about referring to this recent tragedy in Las Vegas and how that incident actually can be taken advantage by, by scammers. We'll also talk about fake company awards and how they, how they hurt everyone. And finally, we will have an interview of the author of Scam Nation, a book about scams. The information presented in this show is based on personal opinion and should be taken as such. Consult your personal attorney before making any financial decision. And hey, if you want to get a hold of us here, the show is pretty easy to do. You can send us an email at hello at metascam.com or hit us up on Twitter at Metascam Show. If it's not hurricanes, it's something else where the general public is going to try to take advantage or not really general public, but those on the lesser rung of humanity will try to take advantage of others, uh, whether it's just pulling at the heartstrings and pulling at the fact that we as human beings on a core level want to help somebody else. And you got to be very careful. It's had a massive tragedy in Las Vegas and there's going to be fake GoFundMes, fake uh, places you can donate money. They're already going to be out there. Yeah, we've seen this. I mean, we're we're broadcasting here from Orlando. Uh, prior to this event, unfortunately, event in Las Vegas, uh, Orlando had at that time what was the largest uh, massive shooting in the United States. And now Las Vegas has taken that uh and even here in Orlando, there were a lot of different GoFundMe pages. And, and once again, a lot of very legitimate ones, but there were other individuals who were out there trying to take advantage of what was a very tragic event and everyone's desire to somehow do something positive. So approaching people who are a little bit vulnerable in the sense of, yeah, I want to help out and, and being able to catch them at the right time, many people are going to respond positively to that request without vetting, is this a legitimate? Is this a legitimate request coming from a legitimate person? Yeah, here during the uh, the, the Pulse tragedy, we had people on street corners that I assumed were not legitimate, and it turns out that they were. And I just assumed it was just people on a street corner trying to take advantage of the situation. And it turns out that the group that I had seen was an actual legitimate group that were collecting funds. Now, the safest thing you can do is go check the city website. In this case, Las Vegas, go to the corporate municipality website and find out how through there you can donate. Or call, contact local churches in the area. Just do a Google search, check, you know, cross-reference that with uh, the white pages and yellow pages in the area, and call up a local church and find out if they're taking contributions or if they know a reputable place that is. So do some research. Don't just, especially, we've always said it here, Verify and trust. So if someone approaches you asking you for a donation directly, tell them you're thinking about it, hang the phone up, 
and then do your own research, and then you can give that way. So just another PSA that we hate to keep on having to make, but we just keep on making them. Peter, don't know if you knew this or not, but we are an award-winning podcast here now. How many times over? Uh, three times over now. We hit, we're eight episodes in with three awards. <laughs> Everywhere I go, every I mean, I'm on I'm on airlines, I'm in restaurants, and every, all of them are award-winning services. And I wonder, I mean, I, I want to kind of verify. Look, if I had time, look this up. Who gave you this award, and what was the criteria for this award, and how many entities have gotten this award over? The, the past. I mean, I, I do see a lot of these everywhere, and you, you begin to wonder after a period of time which ones of them are really legitimate because some of the awards that are legitimate, I mean, that's a great that's a great credential to have. Uh, it's a great tool to say, yeah, there, you have a certain quality in your products and services. But if we blindly think that if a company says, We're, you know, I got this award or that award, that, yeah, it sounds good. And, and we really need to, as part of the Due diligence, let's say, on a particular company or service, go and see what does this award what does this award mean? It's just kind of like well, here in Orlando, we've had this hurricane recently, and the biggest, unfortunately, most of the damage here in this area has been limited to individuals' roofs. That some of them have to be repaired, some a lot of them have to be replaced, and we've had going through our neighborhood so many different roof repair people, roofers, that will leave their card and, or they'll talk to you and they'll tell you, yeah, I have a license, my license is whatever it is. And if you just take that for granted, it's sort of like just if someone tells you that they've received an award and you say, oh, great, you got to go back to the source of that award. Who's issued that award and actually see, is that a legitimate authority and what does this mean? Just like if someone tells you that they're a licensed contractor, just don't take their word for it. Because most of the time, those that are that ev- that are not licensed contractors, but they give you a number, they think that most people are not going to try to verify that. So you got to go to the entity. Like here in the state of Florida, you go to the the Florida the, the, the Florida Department of Agriculture uh, Division of Licensing, and you can look up there easily. You look up the name of the organization of the individual, or you look up that license number and validate that exists. Years ago, I sat in a conference. And it was a marketing conference. And a gentleman from the front of the stage was talking about setting up your own association. And I thought that was kind of weird. Why would I want to set up an association? Like, if I, why would I want, for instance, we'll say podcasting. Why would I want to set up the Podcasting Association of Florida? That sounds like a lot of work for me to do. And he had, like, all the steps lined out, who you paid the money to, what certificates you got, how to set it up as a, as a nonprofit organization, the whole nine yards. And I kept scratching my head while I was in this presentation until they got down to the meat of the, of the reason as to why to set this association up. The only reason to set the association up, according to this marketer, was to give yourself an accreditation and an award. So now I could say that my small publishing company was accredited through the Florida Association of Podcasters and have won whatever award. Now, if nobody does their due diligence, I look top shelf. And it's legal. You haven't broken any laws. No. Completely legal. I've pulled the wool over everybody's eyes, but it's a scam for sure, but it's completely legal. 
Now, when someone does a little bit of research and they find out that that award has never been given out to anybody but me, <laughs> and if they dig around, this guy also said, you know, you register the company up in, uh, is it Delaware, where all the information is hidden, so you can't see who is actually part of the company. So here's the thing. These vanity awards are out there. They run about 50 bucks. You can go out today, right now, you can search best of is the keyword you want. Best of, name your city. So you can say, hey, uh, best, let's say carpenter. Best carpenter in Orlando, award. And you'll find a particular company that is producing these awards. It costs 50 bucks to give you a nice little award, a certificate, and a little uh, glass award with it's all etched out. More plastic, I think, than glass. And a great picture of it, too, by the way. You have to, you, it's less money if you just want the picture of the award versus the actual award. <laughs> because they'll give you a mock up on what it looks like, and you can just take that and put it on the shelf, or you just Photoshop that in wherever you want it. And 50 bucks gets you that. Oh, wait a minute, Andy. I can save everybody that 50 bucks. Just get online, download the template. You can make really beautiful awards, print them out, and who's going to know the difference? I wouldn't pay that 50 bucks. <laughs> Now, last week offline, you and I were talking about the book one where somebody can make you an author of a book or have your article printed in a book and you can be a published author in that book for only $50. Oh, there's a lot of those type of things. Uh, some of these might appeal to the individual, him herself or herself, but other ones are going to uh, appeal to the parents of children. Like, for example, I know way, way back when I was young once, Way back when, when I was in high school, my parents actually got this letter saying, oh, your child is, a, is, is part of the association of, the, of distinguished high schoolers and, and being part of this group, we're we putting out this book that's you know, engraved in gold letters and everything. And, and it only costs, I think at uh, that time, it was probably like 50 bucks, which is quite a bit of money back then. And the, the parent that, wow, that is cool. That is so cool, and I, I need to get I, I should get this because my son or daughter is really you know putting a lot of effort and and, and uh, I want to buy it without of course looking at exactly what does this mean and who's who's profiting from this uh, that association that organization easily got a hold of of uh, individuals who were attending different different high schools and were able to send out these letters massively and pulled in a lot of money because it doesn't take very much just to publish a book when you're looking at volumes of maybe in the hundreds or thousands. Um, then there's these other associations, not to say that that some of them are not doing legitimate things, but for example, I was approached a number of times by who is who. Oh, those are great people. I know, and you're thinking, wow, you've been nominated for this associate, you know, to be a distinguished member of who's who because of XYZ. I mean, it's pretty easy to get your bio these days off of LinkedIn. So for someone to send you a letter saying, we want... You know, you've been chosen by distinct member uh, membership of this organization to acknowledge your successful accomplishments, and also you can use that for yourself or your own credential. You you know, put this put that award on your own LinkedIn. I mean, it sounds great, right? Why not? But just think about how easy that is to pull that off and to make a heck of a lot of money just by providing you with recognition. Once again, you, the vulnerability here is, yeah, who's not going to want to feel good? Who's not going to want to get that pat on their back? S some important organization is recognizing you. I mean, everybody wants that. But then again, you go back to verify. You do, do you, would you prefer to verify who was giving you that recognition versus getting that certificate and putting it on the wall and then someone said, yeah, we know that scam has been going around for quite a while. So you fell for that, eh? 
That exact scenario happened to me. Uh, it was my first year teaching at Mid-South Community College in uh, uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, sorry. And my first year teaching, and I got a letter to deliver to me in my inbox. It was like one of the first letters I ever got. And it was from the who's who. And it was, you know, I'm going to be in the who's who, and I only had to pay them a couple hundred. I don't know what it was. I had to pay them some money to be in this. But they had my bio, and it was the bio from the college. And it was like, you're up and coming, and this, that, and the other. And I was like, man, this is fantastic. And I was a, I was just got a, as uh, came on board as a full-time instructor. I'd been an adjunct professor, came on as a full-time instructor, and I thought this was, this is the bee's knees. And I marched my little happy self down to my dean's office, Dr. Robertson, and I said, Dr. Robertson, look at this. I am on this list. They know who I am. I am, you know, I'm going to go demand more money from the college. And he laughed at me and said, you know, he said, if you weren't so green behind the ears, this would actually be funny. <laughs> and uh, I said, what are you talking about? This is like, this is it. And he goes, this, he goes, this is advertising. I was like, oh, you know, because I was teaching computer science at the time, and I really wasn't into the whole marketing side of things at then. And so it would be given uh, that lecture by Dr. Robertson. I remember it vividly to this day. And we did march down to the registrar's office and got that uh, that company on the ban list from ever writing to the college again. So we knew that if their mail ever came in, the mailroom would just throw away in the trash. Well, that takes me to this point of, I'm sure all of you have seen websites of a particular company that on the bottom of their website, they have all of these you know, uh, acknowledgements, achievements, award, all these different awards where it's very easy to put that award on your website, just post it there, that unless the particular organization that gives those awards, if it's a legitimate one, actually find, finds that, they can maybe go to that website and say, listen, you need to take this down. If not, it's so easy to put those up and they will put in the eyes of the reader Looks like, you know, credibility that, wow, they got these, these various awards. You just can't take that for granted. You really, you know, you, you really should do your research. If you're seriously thinking about uh, utilizing that company's products or services and you don't have any point of reference other than that web page or what maybe a salesperson said that they received these different awards, try to go and verify. If those awards really exist, it should be relatively easy to verify that, that they've received them. Another point on that is just because you see something on the bottom of somebody's website that says, for instance, as seen on CNN, nowhere in as seen on CNN does that indicate that that is a positive review. As seen on CNN could mean that they talked about that product or service in an extremely negative fashion and told people never to come close to it because it's a huge scam. So just saying, as seen on CNN, people automatically assume, oh, this thing is legit. Not so, my friends. As seen on CNN can mean a lot of things. So just remember, when you see those across the bottom, number one, there's nothing that says it has to be there. Nothing that says that someone didn't put there their, uh, fraudulently. And nothing is claiming that it is an actual positive information. Another thing to keep in mind is reviews on Amazon or Google or iTunes or anywhere else that people are allowed to leave reviews for products or services, remember that those can be paid for. Now, the services like Amazon and other entities try their hardest to prevent people from posting paid reviews. However, they still slip through. There are 
so many websites that you can go out to today and spend between $10, $15, and $20 to get a ton of reviews for your product or service. And they'll say that that is the best thing ever. Or they'll just leave five stars and no comments. So I always take reviews with a, with a grain of salt. I always look through them for, you know, the really, really good ones. Did that person leave any other really, really good reviews? Are the really, really bad ones? Did they leave any other bad reviews? So in a world where, you know, reviews are kind of it, where we kind of, the brand isn't so much the brand anymore. What people say about the brand is the brand these days. And so when you look at what people say, you have to remember that people can be paid to, for their fake opinion. Yeah, I'm especially skeptical if I'm seeing those reviews on that particular vendor's website because they, even if they receive bad view, reviews, they, they don't necessarily have to put them on there. They can just screen those out and, not, and only place the, the positive reviews. So it's always good to go to an independent authority uh, regarding reviews. And if it's a business, uh, one, one of the best places to go is going to be the Better Business Bureau. And they are specifically looking at how many complaints have been filed against the company, if any, or it could be several. And then what did that company do about those complaints? Did they help try to resolve those complaints in a timely manner to the satisfaction of the consumer? That to me carries a lot more weight than just looking at the reviews that a vendor might have on their own website. So let's look at this from a broader sense. We are acknowledging that businesses can get their own little fake awards for anything that they want. We're acknowledging that you can have fake reviews. We're acknowledging you have fake followers. Everything can be bought. So how does this hurt both the business and the consumer? We'll start with the business first. How can this hurt the business, these fake reviews and fake awards? Well, with the business itself, I mean, there's, there's that particular entity that has received this award or at least purporting to have this, this receive this award. And there's other competitors in the industry that also are somewhat impacted because if a company is putting up a fake award that is leading the consumer to some expect some standard of quality that's not going to be delivered, the consumer is going to get screwed. That, that company is going to get a, potentially a bad reputation. And they're going to tell other people, well, this company, you know, they have these awards out here that don't mean anything. So long term, even if your intention was not you know, nefarious, and maybe you were approached, your company was approached that you could get this award, you qualify this award, you really have to take a look at what does a, this award really mean? Do I stand to benefit from this because it is fair recognition of some accomplishment and in, in, in the quality of the services? Or is this something that's not really taken seriously in the industry? And if I post this on my website, some people are going to say, yeah, that is... That 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 that's going to that's going to de- that's going to lower that's going to lessen the quality of the of the brand and that's going to have an impact on other companies that are also involved in that same industry when there's this type of awards that are being named and p- companies are putting them up or not having them up there it just creates a little bit of confusion out there in the industry regarding the the quality. So quality is a huge issue for both the business and the consumer. So as a consumer, if I'm going to be purchasing a service or goods or product or whatever I'm doing, and I see these awards and I believe in these awards, and as soon as I purchase the service or goods, whatever it is, and that level of quality isn't there, now I'm feeling duped, feeling taken advantage of. I am going to probably complain loudly about the situation. 
and say, like, you guys have these these awards. You were seen on CNN. You were this. You were that. You, all this stuff is being claimed on your website. I would probably start filing larger complaints with the, with Federal Trade, Federal Communications, whoever I could to alert other people to this what was going on. If it is a, a site where I can complain as a third party, like the Better Business Bureau or any other, like if it's on, on Amazon or Google Play or wherever it might be, you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to complain because most people will. Most, most people are, who complain or are going to complain online about it. There's going to be more complaints than there are people who do that on a positive light to leave a review on a positive. But overall, I think it hurts the brand of the company because even if they are doing something that is top shelf, and they can have a top-shelf product and service and just be number one, if I come in and I see a review that I even think looks fake, or worse, I see a review that has been offered to me before, like the best of awards. I used to get those all the time in running uh, sales and marketing for companies. Hey, you, you, you've been selected to receive the best trucking industry and Winter Garden Award. And it's the same award that I was offered the year before for the other company I worked with, the best software company in Oviedo. It's the same little teardrop crystal with the blue background and the etching. Everything is 100% the same. It only costs you a certain amount of dollars. So you know this is a mass marketing fake award. If you're familiar with it and you see that on another company's website and you know that it's fake, your first thought is going to be they're trying to pull one. Well, it's going to be one of two things. Either you think they're going to try, they're trying to pull a fast one on the community or they've been taken advantage of. Either way, you don't view that company anymore in the positive light that you viewed them with five minutes ago before you saw they had the fake award. What's really important is I know there are some people that will get online and write reviews right away, whether they're positive or negative. Then there are other individuals that if they have a negative, if they would write a negative review, they might think, well, what's the point? Why even bother? That's going to take me some time. No one's going to listen to it. No one's going to care. But think about the times when, and Annie and I do this a lot, if we hear about something, right away we're going to look for, is there any other reference there in the community that has heard this pitch, has heard this you know, type of product or service, and see whether or not there are already reviews on there. No, this is definitely a scam and beware. If other people didn't take that initiative to write those reviews or report things as a scam, we would all, not, I mean, a lot of us would fall for those things because we would be looking for any reference. There's nothing there and we, we fall for the scam. So always take the time to provide a review, especially if the, I mean, if there's something really serious about this product or service and you think that it's not legitimate, take the time to try to try to inform the general public about that, just as you would like to have that benefit of other people bringing that to, to the general public's attention. It's always worth the effort. Yeah, if you're looking at a website that you're not quite sure if the awards they have are legitimate or not, let us know. You can send us an email at hello at metascam.com. We would be glad to look at that for you and come back here with our findings. Now, Peter, you mentioned uh, here minutes ago about roofers coming to your house and through your neighborhood since we've just had this uh, the hurricane come through. 
likewise, uh, I'm in the middle right now of getting bids to have a master bathroom redone. And one of the things that's very important to me is that the contractors that come in are both licensed and insured. And it's kind of hard for me always to, I mean, I, I can take the word yes, and I just say, well, what is your license and information? I need that information. If I don't have it, in fact, there was one company that came through, wonderful com- couple couple guys, really sounded like they knew what they were talking about. I was very interested in, in pursuing them to do the, the makeover. They gave me their business name. I can find no licensing information on them. And when I ask them for the license and insurance, they've gone completely silent. Now, that's just me. I'm just an individual. But if I were a large company, there are ways that people look at that company and say, I'm going to take advantage of them this way. They'll look at it from the outside and say, I can see a hole in our security here. Uh, For instance, even today, this building has a coded key to get in, and I normally meet you downstairs in the front lobby in front of that door. And today I went down and you're inside the key key door sitting down waiting for me. So obviously our security in this building isn't that great. Well, it was just the fact that people like to be helpful, and this particular gentleman saw me there, and I kind of like, you know, say, hey, you know, it's really hot out here. Do you mind if I come on in? I'm just waiting for somebody. And he said, well, so you are going to see somebody here? Yes, of course. Someone is coming down to meet me. Oh, please come on. You can wait over here. And then he walked away, and there was absolutely nobody there to keep an eye on me. I could have walked around this entire building and uh, did all kinds of uh, monkey business here. To, yeah, he could have gotten some to, coffee out of the kitchen. At a very minimum. <laughs> I was thinking about this, like, leaving a thumb drive around the uh, oh, side yeah. of someone's office with malicious <laughs> software on there and... and uh, Putting like confidential payroll on this thumb drive, you know, label, oh, and I know man. maybe Andy wouldn't put it in there, but a lot of other people would be taking. Oh, I'm going to oh, see yeah. what this is all about. What's Joey making that I'm not? <laughs> One of the things that strategic risk management has is what it's called a Carver analysis. What could you tell me, like, what a Carver analysis is? Well, basically, this type of analysis, we're going to be analyzing the vulnerabilities that the company might face from. From the enemies, you know, the the competitors or enemies' perspective, um, creating basically a coordinated scenario with the client based on tests to validate your respective organization's security posture, both inside and out. Uh, we can send in. We we can maybe talk about it also as a, a threat audits. We could send in individuals to sort of test uh, test the security parameters of the company and interact with other individuals who are not going to be winning that this threat audit is being undertaken, but we want to see how they're going to react. We're going to present all different types of scenarios that a company could face by a, a very uh, deviant and, and witty social engineer. What are all the different ploys that they might utilize? What are they trying to, you know, what are the motivations that they're, or vulnerabilities of an individual that they're trying to manipulate to get that individual to undertake an action which will be served to the detriment of that company where they might be given out information that they are privy to, but should not provide that information to people who don't have the need to know this information, information that needs to be protected within that entity or even worse, providing them maybe with access to that company beyond information, access to individuals within the company, which might be the ultimate target of an adversary and or actual physical access 
into that company where you know there may maybe you have the receptionist or maybe you have a guard that actually is supposed to protect the the entry into that company only allowing authorized individuals whether it's authorized employees authorized vendors authorized partner companies authorized perhaps clients and not just everybody and then using that using some sort of ploy to get actually through the gate there and to enter the company and be unescorted where then the intruder can do a lot of different things uh, a lot of actually you know technical tools that can be used to really undermine the, the the security of these companies once inside so we have talked about a little bit of this before when I was at a particular defense contractor we called it a red team which I'm pretty sure you guys call it the same thing mm-hmm. and that's just a team that we had internally that would try to look for loopholes and look for vulnerabilities and look for damaging ways or ways of damage rather the company and I mentioned one time we had a guy come in dressed up like a UPS driver and was able to fool the receptionist by telling her he just needed to use the bathroom. And then that he was inside the company and swapped out a box and left a box in a CEO's office on purpose. That was his mission. The CEO knew about it. Nobody else knew about it. And he was successful. Here recently, I had, had lunch with that CEO. And now it has shifted to uh, photographic evidence. So when these red teams are now coming into that facility... They are penetrating as far as they can, and when they get to certain areas, they're taking pictures, which in a government building, uh, even if it's a secret building, are places you're just not supposed to take pictures of. And that is something that they have had happen and are correcting and putting corrective measures in place. But it's very important because we all live in a bubble. And when you live in your bubble, you're very used to seeing people come in, come out, and that you know what they're supposed to do. And you don't, you kind of take your own world for granted. Your day to day. I know I'm going to come in. I know I'm going to punch my code in the door. I'm not really going to know everybody in this building. So if someone comes in and says they're in part of this building, okay, come on in. If someone says they're meeting somebody here, okay, come on in. If somebody's wearing, like, for instance, today I opened the door for a couple of FedEx guys. I didn't know if they were FedEx or not. They had on the right shirts, but I never stopped them for ID. So this can happen, and we're not, I mean, it's not a huge deal here because we're not a government-controlled building or anything. But anywhere you go, someone can come in, just like you said. You could have come in, and you did come in, and if you were intent on doing anything malicious in this building, there are lawyers here, there are software companies here, there are, well, me here. So, for instance, a jealous husband hired you to corrupt their now soon-to-be ex-spouse's law firm, you could have easily brought in a thumb drive, like you said, left it on the ground, somebody pick it up, put it in their computer to see what's going on, and now you've infected their entire network with ransomware. And it's literally that simple. As we talked about in an earlier episode, Andy, uh, individuals who are looking to penetrate or intrude into companies, are gonna, they're going to go through a process of collecting information in advance because they want to be able to come up with the best plan of action for the highest rate of success without being caught. So they're going to be out trying to collect information. A lot of the information they're going to collect online, but they might also be speaking with different employees of that company uh, or maybe even with the, if there's a general receptionist in, the, in front of the building just collecting information about the different kind of companies that are here and knowing kind of like the pattern the pattern of uh, activity in the building so that 
they can come up with a solid approach, knowing, okay, there is this ABC law firm here. There is, as partners, there are listed three or four different partners, and these are the names of them. So you, without ever stepping foot in the building previously, you can arrive at the reception and listen, I have an appointment with you know, Mr. Whatever from this firm. He's running late. He just asked me to stay here you know, waiting for him because it's so hot outside. And uh, okay, I mean, it makes sense, right? You're coming there. You look like you have a purpose. Maybe you're dressed in, in business attire. You have a meeting set up with this partner. You know, if you would, if you would not, if that person would not allow you entry into the building later on, you're gonna get this call from this very irate partner. You know, what the heck? You know, we're paying a lot of money for your services here in this building, and you know, we expected you to accommodate. So, I mean, people in general want to be helpful, and so if they are collecting this information in advance, think about all these what may seem to be very casual inquiries or conversations where you get a phone call from somebody asking for some information. You might think, well, that information is not compromising, but bits and pieces of information can potentially be very useful to end up being extremely compromising if pulled together and used used by a social engineer when going against a target. And it's something you can never let your guard down on. Uh, And that's something that you just continually have to go through training and we found out when I was at the previous company that third-party training was the way to go. Again, because you become complacent on your own vulnerabilities. You don't see them. So a company like Strategic Risk Management can come in, put a red team on, on you know within your building. They can test you. They can probe your business for vulnerabilities as a bad actor without doing the damage to your, build, to, to your business. So they can come in and go, hey, you know what? We could have done this. We were able to get in this far. We could have dropped the USB drive off. We we had access to your server and we could have put you know a, a computer on your network. So many things that can happen. But if you don't have a partner like Strategic Risk Management, you'll never know. So if anyone is interested in considering this type of a vulnerability assessment, please don't hesitate to give me a call. We can discuss this regarding the nature of your business what you're looking to accomplish, and we can provide our own recommendations about different things you might want to try to test. There is a very detailed plan that's written out and agreed to so that there's no mystery, there's no, there's, there's, there's no surprises. I mean, not, not very many people in your firm will know about this. It's only who you want to convey to, but for, the, for a very meaningful threat audit, it's going to be conducting this without anybody anticipating that there is going to be a test today. So we want to make it as real as possible, but at the same time, have a complete understanding between our firm and the client, specifically regarding what we're going to do, what we're going to try to accomplish, and maybe what you know what's off the table, because maybe there are some within the parameters or some things definitely you would not want to have conducted, and that's, that's fine. That's why we want to make sure that there is a complete understanding and that we c- carry out a test that's going to be meaningful you, for you that's going to give you a results that you know you can address and look at how can we, once we do the test, we find out uh, specific issues that maybe need to be addressed. How can we best ad- help you to address those issues, whether it's physical security and modifications or training of, of your personnel and staff. So if anybody would like to discuss this possibility, please reach out and contact us, Strategic Risk Management, 407-475-0154.
Joining us on the show now is Mr. John LaRosa. He has an MBA and has been in the field of market research and consulting for over 38 years and has researched and authored over 500 industry and market studies via his own company, Market Data, which can be found online at marketdataenterprises.com. He has investigated a wide variety of service industries with a specialty in weight loss and self-improvement markets. And like most of us, John hates to see people get scammed and lose their hard-earned money. Now, Mr. LaRosa has authored a book entitled Scam Nation Fighting the $257 Billion Epidemic of American Consumer Frauds and Cons. Mr. LaRosa, how are you doing today, sir? Very good, very good. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Like, why did you decide to write Scam Nation? Well, uh, over a couple of decades of being in the market research field, I have looked at a lot of different industries. And some of these industries, uh, their practices are less than scrupulous, uh, one, one could say. And I've come across a lot of them. Uh, the work I do is kind of like being an investigative journalist with a focus on business. So in the course of my research, in um, areas like weight loss programs, weight loss products, um, rent-to-own stores, uh, payday loan services, car title services, um, collection agencies. All of these are industries that we publish reports about. And sometimes the, uh, the operators in these industries uh, don't have the best interest of the consumer in mind. So especially since the um, Ponzi scheme by Bernie Madoff was exposed and the, the financial crisis that we had in 2008, 2009, I noticed that the number of scams and frauds seemed to be increasing in number. And one thing I, I saw in the news really, really caught my attention. You know, after Bernie Madoff was exposed, with the, uh, the the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, uh, I was surprised to find out that after that, there were 600 other Ponzi schemes uncovered in the U.S. and that that just boggles boggles the mind. So I, I decided to look into it further and use the research that uh, we've compiled over the last uh, 10 or 20 years and put it into a book to bring this problem to the attention of the public and to help them avoid some of the major scams and frauds that exist. Hey, John, I got a follow-up question. Once you decided to write this book, approximately how much time did you spend on gathering together the research that you had as well as conducting additional research and actually uh, writing and completing the book? How long did that process take you? Uh, the process took about eight months, but it's not eight months of full-time work on the book. Um, of course, to uh, pay the bills and make a living, I uh, still uh, write reports about different industries. So this was kind of um, a part-time project, but uh, the total amount of time to put it together was probably about eight months. What's the driving force behind spending eight months of your life to write a book like Scam Nation? Well, as I said, a lot of the research had been done uh, already in the, in the uh, industries that we've analyzed and published reports about. And uh, I, I just uh, 
am a fan of TV shows like American Greed on CNBC, and uh, I'm just fascinated with uh, some of these frauds and, and scams that uh, people pull off either successfully or unsuccessfully and how they get caught by the FBI and the authorities. And it, it just seemed to me that, that the number of um, of these scams was increasing, and I wanted to get to the uh, the root of the problem and, and find out why it was increasing. And uh, we, we did, uh, for the book, um, put a theory forward, uh, my own theory about why uh, this is happening. And my own feeling is, is that the uh, poor job growth since the Great Recession, coupled with the greater use of the Internet and the fact that many government agencies like the FBI, the Federal Trade Commission, and um, um, other agencies, the IRS and other agencies are, are woefully understaffed. So, you know, in my own uh, area in Tampa, Florida, uh, there was a big um, story about the uh, filing of bogus tax returns and, and people stealing uh, other people's identities and social security numbers and filing uh, tax returns to get refunds in uh, in their name rather than per the person that was due uh, the refund. So I believe that uh, there are a couple of factors that contributed to the explosion of scams and frauds in the uh, in the country. Not the least of which is the, the expansion of the internet, which makes it easier for these con artists to. Uh, to perpetrate their crimes. So, John, was the purpose of the book more to explain a sort of a historical view of different types of scams, to inform the public about all the different types of scams that you are aware of, uh, or was it more focused on, in addition to that, how you as a consumer might be able to protect yourself, what to look out for and, and how to protect yourself? Because uh, one could say there has been a deficiency part, perhaps on the part of law enforcement of being able to uh, track these people down, prosecute them, but that's usually after they've committed the scam versus how does the consumer protect him or herself to not become victimized? Yes, exactly. It, it, it looks at the... Uh, 20, we identified 26 of the largest dollar value scams in the country, and I, I think this is the first time anyone has done that. You know, that there have been articles about identity theft and and uh, filing bogus tax returns and all kinds of scams out there, Ponzi schemes, etc. cetera, uh, but no one has really uh, added up all of the uh, the major scams and come up with a total dollar value as to what consumers in America are losing per year. So, yes, it's, it's exactly that. It's a historical look at what the scams are, how they work, and uh, the dollar amount of, of the scams and how consumers can protect themselves. Because Believe it or not, you know, that there's the uh, Nigerian email scams where they say that uh, someone is in contact with a member of the military or the government and they found a secret bank account with $50 million in it and they just need to 
um, have a uh, an overseas uh, bona fide uh, checking account to park it in, and you'll get a commission for doing that. You know, it sounds ridiculous, and I don't know how anybody still believes that, but there are still people that fall for scams like that because they are uninformed or whatever reason. Now, out of the 26 scams that you guys said you covered in the books, which do you feel was the most gut-wrenching or the worst scam that you had to cover out of all the ones you did all the research on? Oh, gee, that's a tough question. Um, I would say probably the one with uh, phony psychics or fortune tellers. You know, that that's still a, um, a scam that, that's out there, and people that are vulnerable time in their life, you know, they, they may want to get advice by from someone or where to invest their money. Um, that and also the, uh, the dating services where um, some of these dating uh, online websites have databases with a lot of fake profiles in them. Uh, they're called romance scams. So I would say, you know, those are two that stand out as being very uh, uh, bad in terms of preying on people's vulnerabilities. Now, in your book, was as far as the uh, the psychic scams go, you guys kind of went into a little bit with the whole Miss Cleo thing, and which I really appreciated. Uh, can you give us a little recap on that and how all that went down? Well, the Miss Cleo scam was one on uh, late night TV in the 1990s where the, the commercials were pretty Im impossible to miss where she would say call me now for your free reading and she was a woman a black woman with a Jamaican accent and uh, her fortune telling uh, tarot cards was spread out on the table in front of her and she claimed that the cards can reveal things that you will never see by yourself uh, in the ads, Miss Cleo could be seen answering questions for grateful callers to the Psychic Readers Network hotline. And that 800 number for free readings was splashed across the bottom of the screen as Miss Cleo identified the father of a caller's child or told another whether her boyfriend was cheating on her. Millions of people did call that hotline, whether for a little entertainment or because they really believed Miss Cleo might have the answers. And some of the readings were hardly free. Callers would find themselves paying as much as $300 per call. It, it was based more on the amount of time of the call, correct? How long the call dur duration of it? Right, right. And that was, uh, there was a fee per minute. So, you know, if, if she was able to uh, suck you in with uh, some persuasive uh, findings or or predictions, you know, you would be likely to stay on the, the call longer and rack up more charges. The Federal Trade Commission shut down that operation in 2002 after suing the owners for multiple counts of unfair trading practices. And without admitting guilt, the owners agreed to forgive $500 million in phone charges and pay a $5 million penalty to the FTC. Wow, this is huge. If they forgave $500 million, can you imagine? So I know this still, then there are in different magazines you will see little advertisements for psychic readings and for you to call in. And I think there's even on TV from time to time, there may be individuals that are kind of advertising the same thing. 
then you have these other TV shows off and on that will show how a particular murder or crime was solved with the use of a psychic reader that kind of probably in the consumer's mind leads that, wow, this stuff really can work. Mm -hmm. And women seem to be more vulnerable to these psychic readings and and, uh, gurus than men. For instance, from the... uh, According to the American Federation of Certified Psychics and Medians, uh, in 2012, 575,000 women in the U.S. spent more than $1,000 for a psychic reading, and 95,000 men, a lot less, spent that same amount. Then you had another 375,000 women that spent more than 5,000 for a psychic reading and only 5,000 men. And at the highest level, you had 275,000 women paying more than $10,000 for a psychic reading, but only 300 men spent that amount. Wow, that is mind-boggling. And Andy and I are going to go back home and look at our credit card statements to make sure that our wives are not doing this. But that's really, I mean, shows the magnitude of, of what this can do as far as milking people out of out of their money, uh, mm-hmm. such an easy thing to do if people get sucked into it. Absolutely. Now, was there anything that got left out of the final draft of your book? Was there anything that just the editors wouldn't approve or you just couldn't get to print? Uh, no, not really. I, I picked the, the 26 uh, top scams that uh, that stuck out in, in terms of the uh, number of people being scammed and the, the dollar value. Um, I can list some of them. Medicare and Medicaid fraud, of course, was the biggest one at 80 to $160 billion in losses per year. Counterfeit prescription drugs, income tax fraud, ID theft, uh, fake designer clothing, the rent-to-own stores industry, the payday loan services industry, debt elimination services and credit repair, uh, Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing contractors, food stamp fraud, weight loss supplements, cell phone and landline cramming, home improvement, debt collection agencies with, with bogus debts, computer tech support scams, ATM skimmers, phony charities, Nigerian email scams, um, dating services, cash for gold buyers, counterfeit U.S. currency, and work-at-home scams. So all of that comes to an estimated 257 to $337 billion. The reason why the range is so wide is because the uh, range of Medicare and Medicaid fraud is 80 to $160 billion. The government doesn't know exactly, but it, it's somewhere in that range. So, uh, And all of the numbers that we compiled are conservative. It could be... Uh, it could very well be higher than this, but we have a definite um, uh, way to corroborate at least $257 billion in losses. Oh, that's very substantial. The, the extent of the types of scams basically is only limited by the creativity of the scammers, and, but a common element in all of these is going to be based on why do they work? What are the vulnerabilities that they prey upon in the different individuals? If you were to pick out two or three 
specific types of things that individuals in general can be on the lookout for or learn how to best protect themselves from any of these type of scams, what would be your advice based on, on your findings in writing the book? Well, I would say uh, use your common sense. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, I would look for uh, things that, um, well, of, of course, one should always guard things like their Social Security number, their Medicare number, their personal information, you know, with all the data breaches that are going on, even with the uh, the large credit bureaus, it becomes uh, really important to guard your personal information, shred sensitive information that you're throwing out in the garbage, and uh, don't fall for a lot of these offers that come over the internet or by phone. Uh, if the government, if the IRS is claiming that you owe them money, they're not going to call you over the phone. They're going to send you a letter in the mail, for example. And, uh, you know, just uh, have your radar up in, in terms of what sounds too good to be true. I think that we typically talk about here on the show is if someone approaches you, the important thing is to always verify. If you're approaching somebody else, you're going to the legitimate site, going to a legitimate authority to acquire information. That's one thing. But if someone, all of a sudden you receive that phone call or that email, you need to verify, is it in fact coming from the person or the entity that it purports to, to represent? Yeah. Also, uh, people should not rush into judgment. Uh, you know, a lot of these scam artists will say, the offer is only good for today or the next 24 hours. Take the time to do your own research. Get a second opinion, just as if you were going to a dentist or a doctor and you wanted to get a second opinion on something. If somebody's asking you to invest a, a significant amount of money into a new uh, money-making opportunity or company or venture, take the time to research it. Um, check with the Better Business Bureau, check with the Attorney General's office, uh, do some research on your own, ask friends and people more knowledgeable than you um, whether this company is legitimate or not. All right. John, what's next for you? Are you going to do an update on this book in time? Are you going to come out with other uh, are there articles or books uh, regarding this theme? Well, I think for now, that I spent a lot of time doing this book and getting it into a format for an e-book and a print book for, for Amazon, and and it does take a lot of work to put a book like this together, so we don't plan any updates in the near future, but I am planning to do a new book on the, um, the diet industry or weight loss programs, because that's one of my specialties for the last 25 years, and I know a lot about uh, all of the uh, commercial and medical weight loss programs and celebrity diet plans and books and so forth. And so I'm planning to do a book on the entrepreneurs and people who built the weight loss industry in America and, and their backgrounds and how they got started and how they built these large companies like Weight Watchers and Janie Craig and Slim Fast. I think that uh, that would be a fascinating read for most people since 
most people are trying to lose weight and use these programs on an ongoing basis. You know, the first thing that came to my mind is that uh, that's a book I'd really like to sink my teeth into. But since we don't do bad <laughs> puns on this show, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, folks, if you want to check out Scam Nation fighting the $257 billion epidemic of American consumer frauds and cons, uh, you can find both the Kindle version and the printed version over on Amazon.com. Just search for John LaRosa. That is John L-A-R-O-S-A, John LaRosa. Or you can head over to metascam.com forward slash scam nation. That'll take you over there as well. I personally have the Kindle version. And hey, if you're also interested in any of the industry studies published by Market Data, head on over to Market Data Enterprise and check those out. That's going to be the specialties on weight loss and self-improvement and a lot of other things that Mr. LaRosa talked about today. Mr. Rilosta, on behalf of Andy and myself, we'd really like to thank you for sharing your time with us today and putting your best efforts into publishing a book, Scam Nation, Fighting the $257 Billion Epidemic of American Consumer Frauds and Cons. Thank you. My pleasure. And right before you head out, Mr. Rosa, is there any way that people can contact you directly if they have any questions from today? Yes. Um, they can reach me through email at marketdataenterprises.com or they can call our offices in Tampa at 813-971-8080. You can reach me by email at john at marketdataenterprises.com. And we also sell the book on our website as well as Amazon. Perfect. And again, thanks for joining us today on Metascam. Thank you. And remember, folks, you are not alone out there. Do your best to educate yourself against possible scams. Talk to your friends and neighbors about them. Together, we can make a difference. If there's anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. Our email is hello at metascam.com, and we are always here to help. Until next time, this has been Andy. And this is Peter from the award-winning metascam.com. Visit www.metascam.com for show information, archives, and more. Want to get in touch? Follow us on Twitter at Metascam Show or email us at hello at metascam.com.